20 years ago, I came to Toronto to go to university in North York. I didn't know much about the city except it was the biggest one in Canada. I didn't have a plan for graduation, so I wasn't sure if I would stay in Toronto. And growing up in a small Ontario town, I wasn't familiar with or particularly interested in the local politics of my new home. As it happened, though, I fell in love with the city, for all its faults, as so many of us do. I began to pay attention to it, what worked about it, what didn't work, what needed to change, and how change could be affected. I started reading more about the city, and it didn't take long for me to get my hands on my first copy of Spacing magazine. Spacing began the year I came to Toronto, but it would take me 10 years to find my way to it. I was instantly captivated by the possibilities in those pages. It seemed to be a handbook for how to be a citizen of this imperfectly beautiful city. I was re-educating myself as a journalist at the time, and I knew I had to be a part of this publication, this community, this movement. That was 10 years ago. This year is Spacing's 20th anniversary, and in an increasingly brutal media landscape, 20 years of independent local coverage is no small feat. So let's celebrate it. This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting through a post-holiday party fog, I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, David Miller's tenure as the mayor of Toronto coincided with the launch of Spacing Magazine in 2003. Since then, the city and the attitudes that shape it have changed and changed again. I asked Miller about the urban and political landscape of Toronto 20 years ago, what's different now, and what needs to happen in the future. But first... To properly celebrate Spacing's double-decade anniversary, I speak to publisher Matthew Blackett and executive editor Dylan Reed about how the magazine started, what it means to people, and our latest projects. Stand by. We are sitting in the Urban Space Gallery at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto with Matthew Blackett, the publisher of Spacing, and Dylan Reed, the executive editor of Spacing Magazine. And we are sitting at an official Toronto Parks and Recreation picnic table. Matt, where'd you source this bad boy? I did not steal it. I got permission from the city. They delivered it to us. We're using it specifically as part of our 20 years of Spacing exhibition because the first meeting that Spacing ever held was at a picnic table in Grange Park. Just for people who are interested in the lore of the magazine, uh, what was the reason for that meeting? Well, it was the start of, of a project, a part of the Toronto Public Space Committee. And it was like, do we really want to do something a bit different? We, we, we had been really, as, a, as an organization, uh, um, a number of us had worked in the anti-postering bylaw and, and worked in the group. And we We'd been pretty media savvy. We got lots of attention for us, for our campaigns, but we also realized that there wasn't a lot of like what I would call like a holistic, well-rounded discussion about the issues. It was always seemed to be like a very much news in a, in a silo. And as someone who uh, at the time was already in like working in the in the magazine world, um, I could, I saw that there was this huge gap to discuss these types of things. 
now in iWeekly, we're doing a pretty good job of doing that, but they had other priorities too, music and, you know, concerts and art and theater and all the different stuff that they were, you know, had to, had to cover. So it felt, it felt like a, a, a good opportunity to do something new like this. So Matt came from the magazine world, but Dylan, what was your in, uh, you know, how did, how did you get involved? I was just really interested in urban issues. But at the time, there wasn't really a lot of easy outlets for that. There was the big media, which I wasn't really going to break into. And I read basically a thing in iMagazine about the Toronto Public Space Committee and browsed their website and found this obscure page that said, we're thinking of starting a magazine. So I wrote and was like, I could write about some interesting things I've, I've heard about in you know international media. And they're like, just come and join us at a meeting. And I came to a picnic table and there was, I think it was a third or fourth meeting. And then I just kept coming and uh, they (laughs) basically helped start the magazine that way. Couldn't get rid of you. You're still here today. (laughs) Well, it was so funny because those first, those first years, there was this real like stream of people coming in and out of meetings, but there's just a hardcore of people who stuck through the whole thing. And that's who ended up being the founders. Well, we can't get into uh, all 20 years of Spacing's uh, history, but we are surrounded by it in this gallery. Uh, and when people come to our event, uh, they, they can take it in themselves. Looking around, uh, Matt, can you tell us a little bit about the exhibits that they'll, they'll be able to see? There's a couple of things that are going on. Obviously, we're doing a, a, a magazine, a release party, a book launch, and we're doing the exhibition. So this, uh, by the time everyone hears this, the book will be launched, the magazine will be released. It's been really fun for us to kind of like delve into our legacy box, which is basically a, a, a big banker's box where we put in posters and postcards and buttons and all the things that we've published and made over the years. And it was fun to be a little bit nostalgic um, and look at some of the, the the stuff that we did off the start. So, you know, we have, we have things in here about postering. Um, we have things about our uh, history of our covers in the magazine. We have a wall with a bunch of our awards that we've won <laughs> over the years, things about our events, our, our buttons, our subway buttons. So there, there, there's lots of stuff, I think, to to explore. I don't want to give too much of it away. I want people to actually come in here and and kind of see stuff in a kind of tactile way. Um, I think that's kind of what's, what's unique about us is that we've always been more than just a regular magazine. You know, we've hosted events, we've made merchandise, we've published books, we've had podcasts before people really had podcasts. We did really interesting stuff on the web in the in the early days um, with other blogs like Torontoist and BlogTO, and yeah, we've we've been innovative in the magazine world as well, just by the l- landscape orientation of our of our magazine and how bizarre and odd that was when we launched in two thousand three. So you know, it's 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 a way of like giving some kind of context to our, I guess maybe like our own history and kind of our own little bits of impact on the city over twenty years. And editorially, Dylan. Uh- has the magazine changed, you know, over the 20 years? Obviously, we cover similar things, but uh, what, what would people notice uh, differently from uh, issue one to uh, issue, I can't even remember what we're on now. I think we're on, we're 65, right? Yeah. Right on. Well, I mean, lots of changes. I mean, the first one was black and white. Matt said, Matt's pointed out that uh, when we went to color, a lot of people were like, we didn't even notice it was black and white because, you know, Matt was designing the magazine so beautifully from the start. We went from twice a year to four times a year. The The magazine's grown and shrunk. Uh, so it, it started off small. It got pretty fat uh, in the in the fat years of magazines. And then, you know, like with other magazines, we've had to struggle a little bit. And so the magazine is a, is a bit thinner now, but I think it's still got uh, really great content. And I think that's the thing that's been consistent all the way through. Uh, looking back at those early magazines, it was really amazing to see 
how much of a demand there was by creative people, by writers and illustrators and photographers to get their stuff out there and to talk about the city. And there wasn't really a venue to do that when we first started. Um, and just seeing that that burst of creativity and, and those first few magazines, uh, people weren't being paid. So that's another thing that's different now. Everyone's being paid for their contributions. But people just wanted to, people wanted to write about their city and how much they loved it and how much they wanted it to be better. Looking back on that was really, uh, it was kind of brought the excitement back again. I think if I was to add anything to that too, I think that some things have been really consistent about us. One is, you know, we've been really adamant about trying to uncover the joys of what's good in the city. Um, obviously, we've been critical. We've been critical right from the start. I would probably say our tone has changed over the years from even you know, the first couple of years, our, our, we, you know, we, I think we ramped down some of our righteousness that was there in those first couple of itch- issues. You, you kind of get humbled and you realize you have, to, you have to take maybe a little bit less of an adversarial role in, in some of the things. Um, especially as a magazine, you want to be able to present like a wider viewpoint. And I think, uh, I, I think some of that has, has changed over, over the years. And I think the, the, the scope, it was, it was always about public space and still remains about public space. But I think we've, you know, we've expanded to be about urbanism. So that involved, you know, things we didn't write about at the start were housing and police issues. And in some ways we felt like those actually, those issues were actually being covered a fair bit in the, in the, in the mainstream media. But as we went on and, and, and we learned that wasn't necessarily the case and it wasn't actually, they weren't doing a great job of that. I, I think outside of I and now police coverage was, was, was pretty poor in, in the city. So, you know, we've, we've changed on, I think on that front, um, we've, we've expanded our content. We've expanded all the different ways we deliver our content. We started as a magazine and now we're just something a little bit bigger and different and multi-tentacled. We're a media company with a bunch of different ways of presenting contents, which I think is like very emblematic of the evolution of media in the last 20 years. We've kind of been very nimble. We've been very open to change. And I think what we've always tried to do is pick the best medium to tell the story um, or whatever topic it is. So sometimes it might be a book. Sometimes it might be a podcast. Sometimes it might be the magazine. In other cases, it's been it's been short films. Sometimes the best way to do it also is with some merchandise, you know, Rob Ford and the left-wing pinkos uh, all found out about that. And just to build on something that Matt said about joy, um, I think one of the, the our governing mantras from the beginning was we wanted to get people talking about public space and caring about public space. And the first thing we needed to do is get people loving public space, really appreciating it. Uh, and that is why we've always had that element of positivity is because we needed people, we want people to get appreciate and love the public space. And once they love it, they will want to defend it and make it better. I mean, I know, Matt, you've been putting in a lot of hours getting this event ready and getting the book ready and the issue ready. Uh, both of you have. I wonder if you've, you've thought of it in 20 years, if, if spacing was a person, that person can vote, that person is graduating from an urban planning school or getting an internship with a, a municipal council campaign. Do you get emotional when, it, when, when you look at things in, the, in that perspective? In some ways, I you know, I don't want to, I don't want to pat ourselves on the back too much. I don't want to be too nostalgic because I think one of the things that's been successful for the magazine is that we've been forward-looking for the most part. We 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 like to tell our the history of the city, but we tell it so that we understand the present and then we can go into the future about it, not just to like revel in our in our history. So, you know, I I would say that 
I'm really pleased with what we've been able to do. I think probably any media organization that launched in the 2000s could have gone a bunch of different ways. We were approached in the early days about being purchased. And I think we just would have been turned into a real estate magazine if that, that had been the, the, the case. Unlike most magazines, we started off as a project, not as a business. We turned into a business so that we could survive and operate in a, a well-managed type of, type of way. And because of that, at the heart of our business has actually been like the topic about public space and urbanism. That's what's been driving us. It hasn't been the business. It's been, it hasn't, which is usually the, the case with publishing. It's like, it's the bottom line. So we've, we put in a lot of commitment. We sacrificed over the years, not just at the beginning, but, uh, but it took us a long time to become, I think, truly sustainable. Um, things like starting the store was, was a, was a key thing to making sure that spacing stuck around for the long haul. That, that gave us, um, a lot of solidity. And it also gave us a whole bunch of credibility that we could do something else besides just do the magazine. And I, and I, I kind of keep circling back to that is like, at the heart of it is the magazine and public space and that, that kind of drives the business, but we've been able to do all these kind of other things with it. And I think that's probably the greatest success. That's what I feel probably most proud of is that we've been nimble, we've been creative, and that we've really been committed both to our cause and to like about public space and making Toronto a better place to live, but also to, to each other. We, everyone's stuck around for the, for the most part and really kind of put in their, their, their time and love to this. And it's, we benefited from all that. We also, as you, you said, we have uh, two offerings that we want to point people towards. First, uh, our next regular issue, which is a kind of reflection on, on 20 years, uh, what's happened in that time span, as well as a book. So uh, can you tell us about uh, what people can expect in those pages, starting with the issue, and then uh, we'll talk about the book. Yeah, well, the issue, it kind of starts off with spacing and then goes into kind of a broader thing of where Toronto is at over 20 years. We have some fun stuff, which we do every issue. Uh, Matt can probably talk about that a little bit more. We look at some of the people that we've been uh, worked with, like interns and some of the people. I mean, one of the great things about spacing is you get exposed to so many amazing people who are doing great things in Toronto. And on our 10th anniversary, we talked about 10 people we love. And now we've added another 10 people. Uh, we love profiles of them as well. We looked at uh, the past 20 years, like some of the good things that have happened in Toronto. It's so easy to you know, look at the negative stuff that's happened. Uh, so we really brought out, uh, since our 10th anniversary issue, what are, ten, what are 20 things of great things that have happened in, in the city? Yeah, so we've really kind of looked back, uh, but also looked forward to where we're, I think, where we're going. The thing that I'm, I, you know, I'm excited about the whole magazine, but I, I you know, I, I, put, I put a lot of time and effort into thinking about the cover. That's what I do all the time. You know, at our exhibition, you'll see we have all of our covers uh, in the magazine. There's, there's articles about my favorite covers that I've designed. And this issue racks up, uh, uh, is, is right near the top there. Um, we commissioned uh, Emily May Rose, who's a fantastic mural artist, uh, graffiti artist. Um, and she, she's known for her uh, whimsical, cartoonish raccoon murals. And so we got her to create a cover specifically for us. We got a garage. It was painted on this garage over uh, a, a day in, in October. We have a time-lapse. If you go to um, any of our social media channels, you get to see a time-lapse of, of that cover being made. And it's a really fun thing. And then a few other kind of fun things in the issue is uh, Jeremy Hopkin, who's a fantastic local historian. Um, he does a lot of graphic design work. He colorized the 1856-57 panorama of the city that was used as part of the submission to convince Queen Victoria to name Toronto the capital of Canada. 
because we're kind of going through that, that, that kind of process at the time or the province of Canada. I think that's what it was that the, it was going to be. And uh, so this is 12 photographs. Um, it's the first photographs of Toronto that, that have ever been captured. And he's done a fantastic colorizing them. And then in, in, in previous issues, in the 10th and the 15th issue, uh, our anniversary issues, I did a, a look back of Spacing's historical covers as if we existed pre-2003. Um, what would our covers look for certain eras, di- different decades? And so I, I've created some <laughs> more of those, which are always fun. It gives us a chance to poke fun at ourselves, poke fun at the city, kind of see events that are that happened in the past and how we think we could have reacted to them. Sometimes we make ourselves look stupid on, the, on those covers. Sometimes we make ourselves look smart. And just in time for the holidays, we have the big book of spacing. Uh, what can we find in there? Well, that's been an amazing uh, experience because we basically worked through all 64 of our past issues to pick out not just the best, but also the most kind of long-term stories from 20 years. And, and that was difficult. We, we must have ended up with three or four times as many as we actually ended up in the book. And so we picked things that we thought were kind of... Uh, always of interest. Some of the bigger pieces, the more substantial pieces, but also some delightful short things that, you know, are just really fun. So it's kind of a great mix. It was really hard to choose. We had a lot of debates. Um, But I think what we've come up with at the end has been just an amazing set of stuff that is going to be of interest. It really, really takes us back and takes us forward. It's going to be of interest for years and really captures uh, 20 years of Toronto what the potential is for the future and also a lot about, you know, the past as well. And really creates kind of a monument to spacing, something that's a bit more solid, something that can last a long time and uh, really captures what we've been all about. Well, uh, Matt, Dylan, I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time and uh, I look forward to celebrating 20 years with you. And uh, if you out there would like to celebrate the next 20 years of spacing, you can buy the new issue and the big book of spacing at our spacing store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. The spacing exhibit at the Urban Space Gallery will be open from now until January 27th of next year. Now, when David Miller was elected, there was a sense in the city that big changes and new ideas were needed to address the needs of the relatively new megacity. And Spacing was there with plenty of suggestions of what those changes needed to be, whether City Hall asked or not. Here's the former mayor on 20 years of Toronto urbanism. 20 years ago, you became mayor of Toronto. You were considered the progressive urbanist counterpoint to, I think, Mel Lastman, your predecessor. And that same year, a group of activists and urbanist thinkers came together to form Spacing Magazine. And it seems like we were riding the same wave for a time. So I wanted to ask you what you remember about that time in terms of urban thinking and uh, people's attitudes to what a city should or could be. It, it was a time of hope. You know, there there were... A variety of reasons why I got elected, but one of them was a real desire for Toronto to become the city it could potentially be, and a feeling that City Hall was holding it back. That Toronto, once upon a time, had been a city of of new ideas and innovative thinking, and it wasn't that kind of city anymore. You know, one of the issues that 
aimed to dominate the election was about the Toronto Island Airport. And that symbolically was about a whole range of things, about the prevalence of backroom deals at City Hall at, at the time before me, where it was a place that you could influence change in your favor, uh, depending on who you were, not what your ideas were. It was also symbolic of the fact the city was going in the wrong direction around issues like public space and who is the city for. Mm-hmm. And there was a huge public conversation, really, that at its heart was about who was the city for. You know, is the city for people who are well-connected? Is the city only for people who can afford to own a car, for example? Is the city for people with extremely large houses on huge lots? Or is the city for everybody? And I, I think the island airport issue, in a lot of ways, symbolically had a whole range of those layers and led to this public discussion about, you know, what, what about our collective rights? What about public space? What are other cities doing to be innovative and forward-looking on issues like the environment, on public access to city hall? So that that city hall is is there for for people, not just for for lobbyists and other insiders. And there was, I think, a level of excitement as my campaign started to to take off about the possibilities to really rethink Toronto in a lot of ways. And to me, it was in that sort of milieu that spacing came along, and I was so excited as mayor because to me the fact that a group of young really smart people who deeply cared about the city would create something with the mandate of spacing was was a real validation of the way i saw things as well and was very very exciting it really spoke to the possibilities if people were involved with city hall and thinking about parks and walkability and cycling and transit and the kind of buildings we built and their quality and environmental standards and and much more. I found it a really exciting moment and I, I was thrilled when it happened. You and your colleagues would often come to our, our magazine launches and uh, events. We, we would throw big parties. A lot of local politicians seemed generally supportive of spacing. So, You've kind of touched on it, but uh, what did it mean for you to have a publication like ours contributing to the discourse? Well, it's very important that there are places where we can have conversations, which is what occurs in spacing, in a way. It provokes a conversation amongst people about city building ideas. You know, the, the... mayor before me and the two mayors afterwards have seen their job at City Hall as simply constraining expenditure. And in a way, that's a very easy thing to do. It has really serious and terrible consequences for people and for the city and for our environment. But, you know, turning the tap off is you just turn the tap off. Building a city is a complicated thing. Mm. You know, there are elements uh, of experimentation that you might get wrong. 
And so where do you have that conversation with Torontonians about new ideas and what's happening in other places that really works and how to build a city that is equitable and inclusive and vibrant and fun? I can remember a push somewhere to stop kids playing ball hockey <laughs> yep. on the streets. And somebody said, is Toronto a city where, you know, fun has gone to die? <laughs> and, you know, spacing is dealt with all sorts of serious topics, but there's a sense of, of joy in the city and a sense of hope and possibility. And because you need a place as a city, not just between city councillors and the people they represent to have these kind of conversations about what, what is it we're trying to build? It's a hard thing to build the future. It's a hard thing to experiment because sometimes you fail. Spacing gave a way to have those kinds of conversations, which was exceptionally important. And I think one of the reasons why I and members of council enjoyed coming to the, to the launches, not because the launches themselves were, were fun. Of course, that's a reason. But because this was a place where that conversation could happen, and if you were part of a, a city council uh, that was trying to be engaged with people, advance new ideas and innovate, it was really exceptionally important that there was a place for that conversation. In looking back at this past 20 years in Toronto, it does strike me that we're facing a lot of the same issues, sometimes exactly the same issues <laughs> as we are today. For instance, did you fire a cannon at the Gardner Expressway? I believe I did. <laughs> Was that with you? I, I wasn't there. That's before my time. But uh, it just makes me think a lot of these same issues have turned out to be generational issues, which I, I think surprise a lot of us. Are you surprised to see that we're still arguing about certain things like the Gardner Expressway, what to do with it? No, I, I'm less so. Yeah. You know, by the time I became mayor, I'd been elected for nine years and I'd been involved indirectly in local politics through my legal practice because we acted for the Toronto Island residents. Mm -hmm. So I had a view of local politics from probably 1985 onwards. Mm -hmm. So I had gone to council meetings, gone to committee meetings, represented people in litigation against the city and uh, Metro from then and then been elected. So by the time I was mayor in 2003, I had nearly 20 years with in-depth experience with politics in Toronto. I had watched a conservative government get elected and force the then region, uh, Metro, which was amalgamated into the city in 97, to spend $100 million to fill in the beginning of the construction of the Edmonton subway mm -hmm. as an odd parallel with a conservative mayor immediately getting elected after me and spending a hundred million dollars to stop the uh, construction of the shepherd lrt but i digress mm -hmm. by the time i was mayor i had seen that there are big issues that toronto and the province because it has far too much influence over what happens in toronto have difficulty grappling with particularly around issues of social inclusion and uh, issues of big infrastructure projects like transit. So 
you know, one of the reasons that I really pushed against the advice, by the way, on a whole range of fronts all at once as mayor on social inclusion, on housing street involved homeless people, on uh, supports for young people, particularly those from low income neighborhoods, on transit city, on our environmental strategy was because I'd seen over 20 years the fact that there, there seemed to be uh, a tendency in Toronto for one foot forward, two steps back. For example, this obsession with subways. <laughs> yeah. you know, subways are fantastic. I love subways. One of the reasons I moved to Toronto was because it had a subway. You know, I had my first toy train when I was about three. It was a clockwork wind-up that granddad gave me, maybe four. So I, I love subways. But, you know, it was clear to me by the time I was mayor from 20 years' involvement in, in local politics in Toronto that would, there would never be the money to build a network of subways in Toronto, nor should there be, because subways go between destinations where there is really significant density. And Toronto in the core has the right kind of densities, but for generations will not have those densities in the inner suburbs. It, ju it just won't because they're built in a, in a way that it's very difficult to rebuild in the densities required and so can be served by other kinds of rapid transit, particularly LRTs, if we're going to have a transit network that can then support the building of, of density and support social inclusion and can reach out to low-income neighborhoods and make sure they're part of the fabric of the city. And it was, you know, because of what I had seen with subways be started and stopped, and both the Peterson government and the Ray government had subway plans, and the only thing that got built was half of the Shepherd subway. It wasn't even the full proposal, which I voted for. So I observed it keenly. And while it was on time and on budget, it, it doesn't, you know, given the money that was spent, it didn't really materially advance transit across Toronto as a whole. So I'd lived through all of this. So, you know, I was very worried as mayor that if we didn't take advantage of every opportunity and pull together a broad coalition of mayors across Canada to, to ensure that the funding from the federal government came to support certain things like transit and from across Ontario and around the GTA, to ensure the province supported us. We didn't do that and work incredibly hard. These things would never happen because I had watched that cycle. And you're now seeing it. It's fantastic that the Finch LRT and the Eglinton LRT are underway. It's fantastic that the eastern part of the Ontario line is being built, which is essentially another transit city line using another technology not quite so sure the expenditure on the western part of that is worth the money and the the way it's running under the uh, queen and and um, osgood stations is exceptionally problematic and expensive so there's going to be some issues there but that's an aside but we still really haven't got a network that reaches into all the neighborhoods that need it particularly in scarborough and this is 20 years after I was elected mayor. So am I surprised? No. These are big issues. We have a history of difficulty in grappling with them. And our history is when we have these moments where there is a progressive provincial government, a progressive federal government, and a progressive mayor, we make huge progress. 
we've now got a progressive mayor, got a progressive federal government. <laughs> the winds for now, yes. <laughs> change maybe blowing. You know, there'll be a moment after the next provincial election where some real progress can be made on a lot of issues, not just the gardener, not just the transit. If you look at you know, our plans around street-involved homelessness or our plans around how to support low-income young people from growing up in low-income communities, it's actually depressing because it's the same thing as transit. You go back and find plan after plan after plan that wasn't done or only partly done. That's the history of Toronto. It's true on our, on our social strategies as well. Yeah. So, you know, we have a moment now, and the lesson I take from this is we have to seize the moment. When we have a progressive mayor elected, we have to seize the moment, and that mayor is best able to seize the moment when, when we have provincial and federal governments that are supportive of the same goals. For a politician with a, a media organization like Spacing, I can't imagine it was all roses. Many spacing contributors could dig in hard when they felt they had to take a stand. We could be pests. Uh, for instance, we were not big fans of the Astro Media street furniture and garbage can thing. Our publisher, Matthew Blackett, who you know, said, uh, he said, uh, to quote him, uh, we could be righteous and demanding of immediate change. Did that ever get uncomfortable? Was it difficult for you and your colleagues not to write us off as fresh-faced or too idealistic? It's an interesting question. I still think we were right about the astral deal, to give an example, yeah, but wrong about a part of it, which is the garbage cans. They were a disaster. Um, what I think was lost in that particular debate was there was advertising all over the street furniture in the various suburbs that made up Toronto before that. And this was a very good way actually to organize that advertising in a way that was less intrusive. But I, I think spacing's advocacy on that issue was exceptionally important. And, you know, as a, as an elected official, you really do get caught up in the, in the day to day and what you're trying to do. And it's actually very helpful to have voices you respect from outside to in effect say, are you really sure what you know what you're doing? <laughs> you know, it's like the, the figure of the jester in medieval courts, who was the one person who was allowed to say the truth to the king. You know, it, it is, that is an important thing. And you've got all sorts of considerations when you're an elected official trying to do your job properly, ethically, fairly, and effectively. Now, that was a billion-dollar contract, for example. It's the largest contract with a private sector provider in the history of Canada. Turning down a billion dollars is tricky for an elected official, as you sure. can imagine. But the issues spacing raised on, I'm just using that as a particular example, were entirely valid and really resonated with a lot of people. And one of the predecessor deals to that, the OMG media deal, or garbage cans was completely a complete disaster and and you know according to some media reports uh, probably likely corrupt so although you know nobody wants criticism and criticism from spacing got through if the toronto sun said stuff it sort of fell on deaf ears particularly after they ran a cartoon of me as clifford olson 
because uh, I'd proposed a tax increase. I'm not sure how an elected official proposing a tax increase equates in any way to being, uh, you know, Canada's greatest mass murderer. I mean, there's not any balance there, but it's, it's so ludicrous. You just, you have to ignore it. I mean, it's spacing on the other hand, because it was new and, and full of energy and good ideas and trying to make the city a better place for everybody. If it was critical, you paid attention. You know, that criticism in particular made me think a lot about that issue. I came to different conclusions, but I had a slightly different set of facts before me than spacing would have. But I think that's a really important function. And I, just to broaden this a bit, I never had any issues, as far as I can recall, with journalists. Mm-hmm. I think journalism is an incredibly important profession was very important at City Hall. You know, people it helps people engage with the city in a way. You know, some people like to come to meetings. Some people just want excellent city services. But everybody needs to know what's going on there, and the best journalism does that. I did have some issues with opinion writers because some of them used to make up facts, and if you said the newspaper, they'd say, well, it's opinion. Well, but they made up facts. You know, for example, Mayor Miller said X when I've said nothing of the sort. And I would classify spacing as excellent journalism in that context. It was a very important place to engage with the city. Those criticisms around Astro or anything else were certainly valid and came from a valid perspective of people with journalism planning architectural backgrounds. And we're a really important part of the discussion. And, you know, selected official, if we're going to have the benefit of a place like spacing that is helping create a conversation around the, the best way to take a city forward, and my goal was to take the city forward, you've got to accept the consequences that when something you're doing is seen in a negative light, that people are going to point it out and yell from the rooftops. And that's not only fair, that's good. But yes, it was heard. So I joined the magazine only 10 years ago at, a, let's say, a very different time politically uh, than when the magazine started. It was the Rob Ford era, and uh, people generally seemed a lot less receptive to the ideas we were championing. Uh, where my friends who founded Spacing were trying to sort of cheer on opportunities and the hope they saw for Canadian cities, my experience here has been mostly one of frustration and anger. Did the attitudes towards cities change for the worse somehow? And do you feel some of the same frustrations? I'm sad about both the Ford and Tory eras because one of the things we did um, quite deliberately and well was enhance the status of Toronto as a government. And we were very conscious about that and deliberate. We wanted people to gain respect for the city government, so it's one of the reasons we, early on in my tenure, did all of the the work to root out the corruption and make lobbying transparent and bring in the lobbyist registry and then implement all the recommendations, the MFP inquiry, etc. It's one of the reasons we uh, left the Association of Municipalities of Ontario. It was very subtle, but the province passed a law that said AMO spoke for all of its members in dealings with the province. And our view was the city of Toronto speak for itself. Mm-hmm. 
And the only way we could do that, because the law was AMO speaks to its members, was get out of AMO. So we very consciously tried to create a government that was respected, in which the politicians were respected, the mayor was respected, but far more importantly, the institution was respected. And because we really succeeded in that, it allowed us, for example, when the national government did a funding program under Paul Martin, Toronto was the only city in the country to be a signatory. Everywhere else, it was provinces or municipal associations and the federal government. But in Ontario, it was the federal government, AMO, the province, and Toronto. And Paul Martin, at that signing specifically, thanked me for, for my leadership on that. And to me, it was a you know, validation of what we were trying to do to make our government respected as a government. And we talked about orders of government because cities had responsibilities, provinces had responsibilities, federal government had responsibilities, not levels, it's orders. I was very sad in the Ford era, very disappointed in the John Tory era at the efforts, accidental and deliberate, to diminish the city of Toronto and its ability to solve problems on behalf of its residents in partnership with the residents. Mayor Ford, through his personal conduct and the fact that he allowed his brother to pretend to everybody, though, and sundry that he was running the city on behalf of the mayor, Doug Ford went around doing all sorts of damage. So I can do a five hour interview about that alone, but. You know, the, the, the city was very diminished because of his personal conduct and because of some of his actions like canceling the, the Shepherd LRT, et cetera. John Tory's even worse by far. His legacy is that he met in secret with Premier Ford to deliberately diminish Toronto City Council and the powers of Toronto and, and I'm proud that in my time, we could point to the City of Toronto Act and say, 20 years from now, people will look back at the City of Toronto Act as a moment where the people of Toronto were given the ability to build the kind of city they want in partnership with the people they elected because that government has given far more power. 20 years from now, people are going to look at those secret meetings between Ford and Tory to uh, gut council and give himself virtual veto power and the shocking request from, from a mayor to have minority rule, which goes against about a thousand years of history in the, the United Kingdom and uh, its colonies like Canada. Just absolutely shocking and disgusting that it was done behind closed doors. The legacy, you know, 20 years from now, if we don't turn it around and optimistic that Mayor Chow will, people would point to all sorts of disasters and say that happened when John Tory had secret meetings with Doug Ford and gave up the city's ability to lead. I find that depressing. The, the shame brought on the city by Mayor Ford and the fact that Mayor Tory deliberately gave away uh, the city's ability to act on behalf of its residents and gave away the residents contact with city hall by asking for and agreeing to have the number of councillors in the middle of an election that to me is the most depressing thing because political tides will come and go but if you got the structure too much you may have made irreparable damage
Well, it would be too grim to leave it on that note. So I'll finish with this. What is your hope for progressive urbanist discourse going forward? What needs to happen to bring people on board or empower people who are already making positive change in their communities? First of all, the discourse doesn't just disappear. Just because Mayor Ford and Mayor Tory uh, ran governments that deliberately tried not to solve problems, spend as little money as possible, not invest in maintaining basic social services and, and basic public services to predictable consequences. You know, Mayor Chow has inherited a broken and bankrupt city, which was created by deliberate action. That's a real problem to fix, but the discourse hasn't gone away. And for me, the urban discourse globally, including in Toronto, is really exciting at the moment. There's amazing potential around, you know, powerful ideas like how do we make our cities, cities that are far more walkable, transit-friendly, so that people don't have to always drive all the way across the city to meet their daily needs. The idea, in, you know, in Paris is called 15-minute cities. In Latin America, it's called something else. But the basic idea is a city of neighborhoods, mm-hmm. which is what Toronto's image of it's itself. And in many places, that's what it is, a city of neighborhoods. And how do we make that? city a place where people of all walks of life can contribute to the life of the city can live in in relative dignity and can succeed it's a it's a fantastic conversation and we're starting to get building blocks uh, of it socially and and from an infrastructure perspective there's been huge progress on cycling for example you know, we, we had to fight to get every bike lane in, and I, I will, you know, acknowledge that, that Mayor Tory at least got out of the way and didn't stop the bike network from being built, and it's it, it's moving. There is transit being built. You know, Jane Finch is going to have rapid transit, and there are tens of thousands of people there who often work two or three jobs and need rapid transit to be part of the fabric of the city. So there are, are building blocks happening that give us a chance to be part of this global discourse about how we build cities in an environmentally, socially, and economically sustainable way in a more neighborhood-based fashion. And that's something that's fantastic for for Toronto. So there's a moment today, there's some signature projects, the mouth of the dawn being rebuilt. It's an incredible thing. It's just an incredible thing. It was crazy to move the river in the first place and now we're moving it back it's brilliant like that's i think that's unique in the world for a downtown of a city to acknowledge that you know 125 years ago we made, we failed by forcing a river to to turn right at a concrete canal and, and that now we're recognizing environmentally and economically because it frees up land rebuilding the river is possible there is excellent discussion about how we build neighborhoods and buildings how we densify and you know spacing and others in the the urban space have really pushed ideas of densification and uh, affordable housing and social inclusion and transit and you you can see the not only were the seeds planted you know, 15 years ago, the shoots are up and the trees are growing. And there's far more attention to things like green space and our parks and our natural environment than there were before spacing existed. So 
we have another moment. It's come about a little bit differently than the one I was so privileged to have a chance to, to lead the city. But we have another moment now where these ideas are coming to fruition and we're in a position to make some amazing things happen. And from my perspective, the people of Toronto came together to make incredible things happen for seven years, you know, 20 years ago. And it's going to happen again. And it's starting to happen. And we're seeing City Hall push away the debris that is maybe on top of these shoots. And, and it's starting, we'll see these shoots start to flower far more rapidly and, and grow far more rapidly. And they'll be properly nurtured and, and fertilized. And I think it's a really exciting moment because the discussion that spacing is part of is a global discussion. And it's about, you know, how we ensure our cities are sustainable in a time of climate change, environmentally, economically, and socially. And ideas of urban space and planning and the kind of buildings we have and where they are and how we live and whether we live in neighborhoods where you don't have to own a car and, you know, what that means for local services, local businesses, for institutions. All of that discussion is active and vibrant globally and in Toronto. And we're in a position where if we care about our city and think about it in that way, there's a moment to influence its, its forward progress in a really positive way. So spacing was important when it started. It was important in years when it was a bit of a lone voice. And it's even more important now because... As we know from the recent past, we have to seize the moment when it comes. Well, David, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. It's an absolute pleasure. Good luck. Continued success. And that is the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, tell your office holiday party the people skating under the Bentway, or the folks on a frosty hike through the ravines. If you have a moment, share this show around, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, and help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all one word. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or tips, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio. That's all one word or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto, where you can pick up the latest 20th anniversary issue of the magazine, as well as the Big Book of Spacing, 20 years of uncovering Toronto's unique urbanism. In the meantime, a safe and happy holidays to all of you. Cheers.